so nice to see you. I've missed you the last few times we've gathered. I'm so happy to be back with you. And um, before we jump into our lesson, I would like to just remind you that tomorrow night is my favorite night of the year. It's Women's Night of Worship. And um, I love this night. This night is a gift to you. It's a gift for your heart at Christmas time because I know that you are busy this month and I know that you're doing many things to make Christmas really, really special for other people. And so this night is for you. It's for your heart to prepare you for Christmas. Um, it's meant to bless you, to draw you into the Christmas spirit, to fill you up so that whatever happens from December 5th till December 25th, you felt, feel like you've met with Jesus and you can, can walk through the next month with a sense of his glory. So doors open at 6.30, it starts at 7, and I look forward to seeing you here. You will find this to be a very transformed place between now and tomorrow night. Well, on a very different note, let me ask you a more challenging question. Can you think of a time when you ever suffered unjustly? Can you think of a time when you ever suffered unjustly because of another person? So let's think. Maybe you have a time when you were unfairly judged. Maybe you were bullied by someone. Maybe you were mistreated, falsely accused of something. Maybe you were the victim of a crime or you were the victim of physical abuse or emotional abuse. Maybe you were the brunt of someone else's anger. Will you just think for a moment of a time in your life when you really suffered unjustly because of someone else. Now, I know that there are times when we instigate trouble, right? Where we contribute our own sinful words or our sinful deeds to a very turbulent situation and we make it much worse. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about a time when you were actually innocent of all wrongdoing and yet someone caused you pain. About nine months after I surrendered my heart to the Lord, and I actually will say after I surrendered my will to the Lord, because the Lord probably had my heart before he had my will, you know what I'm saying? I was kind of a rebellious, strong-willed um, young woman. Um, and I was in a season of really walking in intimacy and obedience with the Lord. I was in my early 20s, I was fresh out of college, and um, I was growing exponentially in my faith. I was surrounded by Christian friends. I had a Christian community. I was in Bible study. Um, I was just praying a lot and, and feeling just really, really close to the Lord. Probably one of the sweetest seasons spiritually in, in my life to that point. And in the midst of being really feeling intimate with God... I was hit head-on by a drunk driver. I was en route to meet a friend at a local college, um, and I was driving on a Friday night, and this 40-year-old construction worker who was really drunk crossed over three lanes of traffic and hit me head-on, and I was going 40 and he was going 50 or it was basically a 90-mile-an-hour impact. And 
this man had had a history of DUIs, and he had almost hit 20 other people before he hit me. And when, when our cars had that kind of an impact, my, my head went into the, into the windshield. I had my seatbelt on, but my track of my seat broke in the impact, and it threw, everything threw me into the windshield. I scalped myself about to hear. Um, I had glass all over my head, into my, into my skin and my forehead. Um, I crushed my arm on the steering wheel, just turned the bone to pieces. And um, for the next year, I suffered pain and multiple surgeries. I suffered malpractice because the doctor in the emergency room that night made some poor decisions in caring for me. And um, I suffered time at work. And into this day, I, my arm is actually a bow, and I can't move. My fingers are all tied up in scar tissue. So things I used to love to do, like play the guitar, I can't do that anymore. But at the time, I was walking so closely with the Lord, and I was growing in obedience and in, my, in faith, and I suffered unjustly because of one man's inebriation behind the wheel of a car and another man, a physician's poor decisions in the operating room that night. Now, Joseph was a man who suffered unjustly, and he suffered unjustly at the hands of other people. He was a really good guy better guy than his father was, as we learned about last week. He was a man of great faith. He kept persisting and keeping his eyes on the Lord and doing the next right thing in every situation. And yet he was bullied by his brothers. He was victimized by Potiphar's wife. He was thrown in prison for things that he was not guilty of. And yet God was working behind the scenes of his life to redeem, to redeem I want you to think of redeem as to reach in to a bad situation and buy it back to himself. He was working to reach into all of Joseph's suffering and buy it back for his good and for God's glory. And so the, God does the same for us today, and we're going to look at a, several scenes in Joseph's life. You can see there on the screen, Genesis 37, we're going to see Joseph's dreams and deportation to Egypt. And then in, jo in Genesis 39 through 45, we're going to look at Joseph's suffering and reconciliation. And what we're going to learn from Joseph's life is that God redeems our suffering for his glory and for our good. Now, Joseph, he was truly outstanding in his devotion to the Lord. He was highly committed in morality. He was a man of gentleness and patience and perseverance and dignity and suffering and servitude and forgiveness. Joseph was not actually in the lineage to, to Christ, but he was a foreshadow of Christ in so many ways. Like Jesus, Joseph was beloved by his father, and he was obedient to his father's will. Like Jesus, Joseph was hated and rejected by his brothers and sold as a slave. Like Jesus, Joseph was falsely accused and unjustly punished. Like Jesus, Joseph was elevated, eventually, from a place of suffering to a powerful throne, all the while saving his people from death. So when we look at the life of Joseph, we are looking at a foreshadow of the life of Christ. But Joseph's family, his family of origin, was dysfunction junction. 
And so, lest you think that the dysfunctional family is a modern-day phenomenon, it is not. It is back in biblical times. And of course, we can understand why it would be that, because here is one man, Jacob, with two wives, Rachel and Leah, and two concubines and 12 sons. And so we can see how that might be problematic. But remember, the Bible tells us how it was, not how it necessarily should have been. We're reading real stories about real people in real time, and this is the way it was. Plus, in in his family, there was so much favoritism. You'd think that Jacob would have learned some lessons in the past about favoritism. Remember (laughs) Esau? And yet he experienced the same thing. Jacob, if you remember, was his mother's favorite. Esau was his father's favorite. And this caused nothing but trouble for Jacob's family. And now Joseph was the son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. So it seems that Jacob has decided that Joseph should be the inheritor of the birthright since he was the firstborn son of his favorite wife. And this, we know, caused great resentment among the brothers. Now, there are likely three reasons why his brothers really hated him. The first was Joseph's report, seen in Genesis 37.2. It says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them about their father. So from a young age, Joseph was a young man with integrity. And so he told his father about some of the evil deeds that his brothers were doing out in the fields. Like, we don't know, was he, were his brothers stealing some of his father's sheep or goats? Were were they stealing from them? We don't know, were they... um, frolicking with the pagan women in the nation that were, we don't know, but for some reason, something was happening that Joseph felt that he needed to tattle on them to his father. Now, the second reason they probably had trouble with Joseph was his coat. Genesis 37, 3 says, now Israel, that's the other name for Jacob, his name was changed to Israel, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. Now, this coat was a beautifully ornamented robe that was um, what the princes wore. It was what royalty wore. It reached to the floor. It had long flowing sleeves. And the connotation by him wearing this robe was that Joseph had been chosen to be the heir. Now, Reuben was the firstborn of, of his wife, first wife, Leah. But he had disqualified himself because he had slept with Joseph's concubine, Bilhah, so he wasn't qualified anymore. Now, Simeon was the next in line from from his son, Leah, but he had disqualified himself because he and Levi had massacred people at Shechem, so he was no longer qualified. So Jacob likely reasoned that since Rachel was his first love and Joseph was her firstborn, that it was proper in God's sight for him to receive the birthright. But the other thing was that Joseph's coat signified to everyone that he was now an overseer of his brothers and not a manual laborer like them anymore. And so we see that there's great resentment. His, his, in verse 4 it says, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, thirdly, was the dreams. Joseph had two very significant dreams in which it appears that the Lord is confirming to Jacob, confirming Jacob's choice that Joseph is going to be the leader of the family. 
In both of these dreams, Joseph sees himself as in a position of leadership over the family, and the brothers are actually bowing to him in submission. Now, in those days, there wasn't any scripture to guide people, so it was really common that God would reveal things to people in dreams. And so Joseph's dreams seemed to be this clear indication that God had placed a divine call on his life that was going to include leading other people. People were going to follow him. I'm sure at 17, he had no idea exactly how this was going to come to pass or what kind of suffering awaited him in this revelation of these dreams. But the question is... Should Joseph really have talked about his dreams to his brothers? I wonder, was he just a little bit cocky in the way that he was describing how they were going to bow in submission to him and how he was going to rule over them? Possibly he lacked discernment about how to communicate more diplomatically about what God had been saying to him. But certainly it was important for his dreams to be spoken because they needed to be recorded in scripture so that we could read them all these years later and know that God was at work through these dreams to bring about his greater plans. And yet if the brothers had really believed these dreams, I'm sure they would not have been as devious against him as they were. Well, later, Joseph then sends Jacob, excuse me, I'm going to get these names mixed up, I can tell. Later, Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers. They're watching over the sheep in Shechem. And we wonder, what was he thinking, knowing that there's so much anger and resentment against his brothers, against him? Why was he sending his son out alone to go face his brothers? But he does. Joseph goes out and finds that the brothers have moved to um, Dothan. And I have a map to kind of show you what this looks like. Dotham, if you can see the purple dotted lines, so he was at Shechem, and then he moved kind of upward to Dothan. And, um, and then we know that probably with, as, as he's coming with this beautiful, bright coat, his brothers could see him quite a long ways off because they then say um, in verse 18 that they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. They hated him for his dreams. And ironically, it is his expertise in dreams that is going to save their lives. Now imagine his terror, Joseph's terror, as he is confronted by this hatred and envy of his brothers. They strip him of his coat. They throw him down into a dry cistern. A cistern is is a big, deep hole in the ground that was meant to collect water during the rainy season. It had a small opening and a larger um, deep hole. And so anybody who was inside of one, you'd have to have a rope. You couldn't climb out without a rope. Probably he, they expected that he would die of thirst pretty early on in the bottom of the cistern. No one would hear him scream. And yet we learn a little bit more about the brothers because after doing that, they ignore his screams. And scripture tells us that he, they sit down and enjoy a meal together. You can see their callousness in their hearts. They've thrown their brother into the cistern and yet they're sitting there and, and having a nice meal together. Two of the brothers did show some semblance of humanity. Reuben, it says, secretly plotted in his heart to rescue Joseph. And Judah did convince the other brothers just not to kill him outright. But then when a caravan arrives and Reuben is gone, the brothers make a decision to sell him as a slave. Obviously, they didn't care about money. They sold him for 20 shekels of silver when actually the going price that day for a slave was 30 shekels of silver. So they just wanted to get rid of him. It didn't even matter how much money they got for him. 
I'm sure they thought they were never going to see him again. I mean, how would a, a foreign Egyptian slave ever get out of captivity? They thought that would never, ever happen. They'd never have to face their decision again. Their secret was safe. But God was watching over all of these things. And he was working providentially behind all of Joseph's suffering and behind the sin of his brothers. Well, then the brothers needed to go talk to Jacob. And it's interesting, as we know in our lives, it's rare for a single lie to stand alone. We know that lies beget lies. Deception begets deception. And so it says in verse 31 that then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Now this is really ironic because Jacob is now reaping what he sowed many, many years ago. You remember when he killed a goat and used its fur to deceive his father into receiving the birthright? Well, now his sons are killing a goat and using its blood to deceive him that their son has been killed. And Jacob, of course, begins to mourn because Joseph is his favorite son. And so he's mourning, it says, so passionately that no one can comfort him. And yet, while he's mourning and while the brothers are celebrating, Joseph is quite alive and well in Egypt. It says in verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an official of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So he gets sold as a slave, but he's not just an ordinary slave. He gets sold into a position of being a slave to a high-ranking official in Pharaoh's, um, in Pharaoh's reign. It's very interesting that um, God, we see, is working out his plan again behind the circumstances of Joseph's life. And that's a truth I think that we can see right, right away, and that is that God often uses suffering and opposition in working out his will. He often uses our suffering and opposition that comes into our lives in working out his will just the way he was doing in Jacob's life. It's, it's interesting because for some reason we have this misconception that if things are going really great, if, if we're comfortable, if our relationships are harmonious, if our bank accounts are full, then we must be living squarely in the midst of God's will. We think that way, don't we? Why is it then, why is it that we think that God is most pleased with us and most active in our lives when we're experiencing comfort and health and prosperity and blessing? But then, why do we assume that God is somehow displeased with us or he is distanced from us when we're suffering persecution or turmoil? You know, we assume God is far from me now because I'm having a hard, I'm going through a hardship or he's, he's detached or he's not present because I'm going through this kind of suffering. But the reality is that God is always at work in our lives, always through the good times and through the bad times. Sometimes he thankfully does protect us from hardship and he does hold back evil, but he also allows us to live in the reality of the broken world that we have been born into. We live in a world that is full of sickness and death and heartache and betrayal just like everyone else. You know, being a Christ follower is not a get-out-of-suffering-free card. It's just not. 
What it is, is it's a relationship with the living God. It's a promise that God is with us in the midst of hardship, that he will not forsake us, that he will not leave us, that he is present with us, um, that he walks with us through our difficulties. And miraculously, truly miraculously, he can reach into the worst of suffering and he can use it for his glory and our good. That's the miracle of the Christian life. Um, nothing is wasted with God. Nothing is wasted. He uses all things, if not to redeem them in circumstantial ways. He uses them to deepen our character, to teach us perseverance, and to, to draw into us a, a depth of person and relationship with him. Because think about it. Wasn't Joseph exactly where God had wanted him? Hadn't Joseph done exactly what his father had asked? He'd been obedient to go to Shechem and then to go to Dothan. Had God abandoned him when he was in that cistern? Had God not prepared a way of escape for him? Was God not purposefully sending Joseph to Egypt for a reason? Now, the Apostle Paul was another person who um, went through tremendous suffering in his service to God. And yet in all of the trials and all of the tribulations that Paul went through, he never lost heart. He always kept his eyes on the goal that, goals that were before him. And his conclusion, as he writes in Romans 8.31, he says, What then shall we say in response to all this? If God is for us, who can be against us? So Joseph and, and Paul both remind us that, that we can persevere in times of suffering by trusting that though we can't see exactly what is happening, we can trust that God is working providentially behind the circumstances of our lives, and he will help us as we keep our eyes on him, as we persist in doing just the next right thing in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. The joy of living a little bit longer now than I was when I was in my 20s is that I can see how faithfully God has worked behind the scenes of every single thing in my life. And everything has built upon the next thing, which is built upon the next thing. And my character has been strengthened and my faith has been strengthened and nothing has been wasted. I don't look back on anything now in my life and say, see that God didn't use it in some amazing way to bring glory to himself and goodness to me, even the most difficult of things. It's been said that a clay pot sitting in the sun will always be a clay pot, but it has to go through the white heat of a furnace to become porcelain. What circumstance in your life today is like a fiery furnace? You know, maybe for you, it's a broken marriage. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's the death of someone that you dearly, dearly loved. Maybe for you it's poor health, or physical pain, or financial woes, or job loss. Will you think about how God could be using your suffering, your pain, could he be using it in some way to turn your clay pot life into porcelain through that fire? Let's talk about Joseph's suffering and reconciliation. Because before things actually get better for Joseph, they get a lot worse. Um, Egypt was such a different place for him to live than Canaan. The Egyptians worshipped over 2,000 gods and goddesses. Primarily, they worshipped a god of the sun called Ra. And then they worshipped um, a sacred bull. 
The Egyptians were also great builders, and so they used slaves for amassing their huge pyramids. Sometimes the rocks that they were moving into place for these pyramids weighed over 15 tons. And so you can imagine what Joseph's fate would have been to be a common slave and how miraculous it is that God put him in the place that he did as a servant to Potiphar. In Genesis 39, 2, it says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor with Potiphar, but ah, he found favor with Potiphar's wife. (laughs) It's not the favor that he really wanted. And when he refused to succumb to her sexual advances, she grabbed his coat and she accused him of trying to seduce her. He may have lost his coat, but he kept his character. Potiphar then throws him in the king's prison where he finds favor again with the prison warden and with all of the prisoners that are in the prison in jail with him. In Genesis 39.23, it says the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. People recognized that the Spirit of God was in Joseph and he was blessed. And whatever he touched, he succeeded at. And whoever he met, he found favor with. And while in prison, then, Joseph was able to interpret the dreams of two high-ranking officials. There was the cupbearer and the royal baker. And then Pharaoh begins to have dreams. Two times in one night, God causes Pharaoh to have two significant dreams about cows and grain, and they both shared very disturbing themes. Chapter 41, verse 8 says, So in the morning, Pharaoh's spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And then finally, the cupbearer, who had promised that he, when he got out of jail, would tell Pharaoh about um, Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. Now, finally, he remembers, oh, yeah, there was a guy in prison who told me what my dream meant, and it came true. He tells Pharaoh. Pharaoh then sends for Joseph. And just imagine what it felt like to be Joseph in this moment where two more years have passed and he now the jail door is opened and he's told that he can come out and he has to shave off his Hebrew beard and he has to put on fresh clean clothes and, and he's got to be prepared now to meet with Pharaoh. And then Joseph listens to Pharaoh's dreams and then God gives him the interpretation This is what he tells him. He says, the seven fat cows and seven good ears of grain mean that there are going to be seven years of abundance in Egypt. But then the seven skinny cows and the seven thin ears of grain mean that those seven years of abundance are going to be followed by seven years of extreme famine. He says, the seven skinny cows eating up the fat cows means that those years of famine are going to be so intense that people are going to forget they ever even had food to eat. And then he says, the reason why you've got this dream twice is because it is so. It's going to happen. And then Joseph tells Pharaoh he needs to do four things in response to this revelation from God. He says, first, you've got to find a wise and discerning man. And you need to put this man in charge of the entire land of Egypt. You need to appoint commissioners underneath him. And you need to collect a fifth of the harvest in the abundant years to be kept in reserve for the famine years. 
Now, Pharaoh must have seen the Spirit of God working in Joseph in a miraculous way because he convinced, he's convinced that Joseph is the man for the job. That's astounding. Joseph is the man. And so Joseph is then promoted to the highest position of leadership in Egypt. He's second only to Pharaoh himself. He's put in charge of all the land. Now he's dressed in real royal clothing And he's given an Egyptian name, which the literal meaning of the name that that Pharaoh gave him means God speaks and lives. Now, I think it's astounding that the Egyptians worshipped 2,000 different gods and goddesses, two in particular, this god, son son god, and the sacred bull, and yet he recognizes there's something different about this god who's in Joseph. Joseph was also given an Egyptian wife. I'm sure that he didn't really like that because he knew that God wanted him to marry a Hebrew, but he likely had no choice. And yet, he names his sons Hebrew names, and secular historical literature tells us that the wife of Joseph was a follower of the Hebrew God. That's in secular literature. At the age of 30, Joseph was seated at literally the right hand of Pharaoh. He was ruling over all of Egypt. And after the years of abundance, then the years of famine came exactly the way God foretold. Now, as this famine begins in the land, word begins to spread that Egypt has food. And so people from all over begin to come to Egypt to buy food. I wonder what Joseph was thinking at that time about where his, what the condition of his family was up in Canaan. I mean, surely he would have wondered, are they eating? Are they okay? He would have no way of knowing. But interestingly, Joseph chooses to put himself in position where he is actually the one who greets the foreigners who come for food. Isn't that interesting? Maybe he was hoping that he would then get to know whether his family would come and get food in Egypt. And yet behind the scenes, God is working the whole time to orchestrate these circumstances because there are actually three things that have to happen in Jacob's family before they're going to be ready to be the nation of Israel. Three things have to happen. First of all, the brothers need to come to a place of conviction and repentance before God for their sin against Joseph. That has to happen. They're not going to be God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, until that reconciliation takes place. Secondly, the family needs to be reunited as one people. They're, they're one family, and they're all spread out now, and there's lots of deception and lots of hiding and guilt going on. And then thirdly, the family needs to migrate to Egypt because God has wanted to separate them out from the Canaan influences, the pagan Canaan influences, to separate them out unto themselves, and um, they could do that in Egypt. So as food becomes scarce in Canaan, Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to get supplies, but aha, he leaves his brother, his beloved son, Benjamin, at home. He's not making that mistake again. Benjamin is staying home with dad. So when the brothers show up, it's no wonder they didn't recognize Joseph. It had been 20 years. He's clean-shaven. He doesn't look like a Hebrew. He's wearing Egyptian clothes. He's speaking the Egyptian language. There's, there's, understandably, they would not have recognized him. And it's interesting because at first, Joseph is kind of harsh with his brothers. He interrogates them. Do you have any more brothers? What's the condition of your father's health? He's asking them all these questions. And then he accuses them of being spies. He throws them in jail for three days to think about their past sins. And as they begin to stew in this Egyptian prison, um, they start 
they're starting to wonder now, are they being punished for what they did to Joseph? In chapter 42, verse 21, it says, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Joseph heard them say this to each other, and it says that he turned away to weep. His heart is so moved by their confession. And then he devises a plan that's going to test his brother's conscience even further. He's going to send them home to bring their brother Benjamin back, keeping Simeon locked up as collateral to make sure they do come back. And then along the way, the brothers discover that their silver has been put back into their sacks. They've actually been framed. And then Joseph, he was seeking to test their conscience again to see would they bring back the money? Would they actually come back? When their father learns that they now must return with his beloved Benjamin, he's devastated. He thinks that surely this is going to be the death of him to lose his second favorite son. And so, but when the brothers do come back to Egypt with Benjamin, they're bearing gifts from home. They're bringing back the silver that they had mistakenly taken with them the first time. And then they find that Joseph has prepared this huge feast for them. And it's so odd in this feast, I'm sure they were wondering how Joseph had ordered them around the table. He ordered them by their birth order. How would he know their birth order? And he set them all up. And then he gives Benjamin five times more food than anybody else. I'm sure they were wondering, did he see their hearts? Did he know their guilt? But Joseph was testing their jealousy. How would they respond to their youngest brother getting five times more food than everybody else? Would they treat Benjamin like they treated him? Had their hearts truly changed? And the test continued. When they left the meal, they probably thought, phew, we made it. They're on their way back home. And then one of Joseph's servants stops them and accuses them of stealing Joseph's silver divination cup. And, of course, they never suspected that any of them had the cup. So they, they, made, a, a, they made a bold proclamation that, you know, go ahead and search. Anybody that has the cup will become a slave of yours forever thinking that, of course, it never would be found. And then the cup shows up in Benjamin's sack, and they tear their clothes in grief because of all their brothers. Benjamin's enslavement would surely drive their father to the grave. And what a change of heart we now see from the way their hearts were when they plotted against Joseph all those years earlier. And then, really in the moment of greatest tenderness, we see Judah just explaining everything to Joseph. He begins to explain in great detail the story of his father's previous loss, losing his beloved son Joseph. He tells them, you know, the whole story of how they've come to Egypt and Benjamin, he didn't want to let Benjamin go, and that if they go back to Egypt without Benjamin, it's surely going to be the the death of their father. And so Judah then offers himself as the sacrifice. He says, take my life and let let Benjamin go. He felt responsible for the assumed death of Joseph, and he didn't want to be responsible for their father's death. What a good reminder this is to us that confession of sin and repentance are always necessary before restoration. Confession of sin and repentance are necessary before there can be restoration in relationships. 
those are two very, very different things. You know, when I tell the Lord and I confess that I've sinned, when I tell him that I've, I've sinned, I'm actually agreeing with him that something that I have done or thought or said is sinful, and I'm agreeing with him that it is so. But then it's quite another thing to repent of that. Because to repent means I actually turn the other way and I actually have a complete change in my attitude, actions, or behaviors. I actually, it, it's like if I, if I deem myself a glutton, God and I mo- might both agree that I'm a glutton, but if I actually get up from the table halfway through the next meal and walk away, I'm demonstrating repentance. There's action in repentance. And so when a relationship is broken by sin, confessing and repenting is the first step in bringing healing and restoration to that relationship. And that's what just happened with Judah telling Joseph the story of what had happened. There's confession, and we can see that there's a repentant heart. And then what happens next is so, so tender. After hearing Judah's honest confession and discerning his repentant heart, he begins to weep uncontrollably. It's like the floodgates were opened and all of those years of pent-up pain just come pouring forth. And he was weeping so, so loudly. And at last, then he reveals his identity to his brothers in this beautiful passage. Genesis 45, 3-7. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. God literally reached down into his brother's hateful attitudes and cruel actions, and he overruled it for good. God's sovereign plan included saving lives. He sent Joseph to Egypt so that Jacob's family could be preserved through a terrible time of famine and the nation of Israel could be officially born because through Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel would be birthed. And this is so amazing, the tribe of Judah Judah, the one who offered himself in exchange for Benjamin, Judah's tribe would become the messianic line that would lead to the birth of Christ. God used Joseph's brothers and their mistakes to fulfill his covenant promise to Abraham. He used all of it. And then in Egypt, Pharaoh blessed Joseph's family by giving them the very, very best land, the land of Goshen. It was the land where they were able to multiply in people and multiply in livestock. They prospered financially while Joseph continued to wisely lead Pharaoh's kingdom. The people were spared from starvation because of the wisdom that God had given to Joseph in understanding Pharaoh's prophetic dreams. And the family of of Jacob of Israel was reunited 
And upon Jacob's death, which was actually 17 years later, so Jacob got to live with his sons in the land of prosperity for 17 years before he died. And upon his death, then, he was able to give the 12 future tribes of Israel a prophetic blessing. And then this narrative closes with the most beautiful, profound, truthful words in the whole story are found in chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph assures his brothers um, because they're afraid um, because of what they've done. And he tells them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are this day. And the truth that we can take away is that God can reconcile our broken relationships and he can redeem our suffering for good. God can reconcile our broken relationships and redeem our suffering for good. You know, we are all born into one significant broken relationship. We are born into a broken relationship with God. That's how we come into this world as sinners. But God has made a way for for to reconcile broken, sinful people to himself through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. This gift of our salvation is the ultimate act of reconciliation. And it's no coincidence that the relationship between Joseph and his brothers foreshadows so many aspects of our relationship with Christ. Let me just share a few with them so that you can, you can put the dots together and see how this story so foreshadows our relationship with Jesus. Just like the sin of Joseph's brothers separated them from Joseph and condemned them as guilty by their evil deeds, so too our sins separate us from God and declare us guilty before him. But through Christ, we are reconciled with God and there is therefore no condemnation. We are forgiven. Our guilt is removed and we are brought near to God. Just like the sins of Joseph's brothers put Joseph into slavery and prison, so our sins against God nailed Jesus to the cross. Just like Joseph was made to suffer for the ultimate salvation of his family, Jesus suffered for our salvation and reconciles us back to himself through his death on the cross. Just like Joseph wept and hugged his brothers when they came to him in repentance, Jesus embraces us with his love when we seek forgiveness with a repentant heart. And he cries over our pain that we bring upon ourselves because of sin, and he fully restores us back to himself. Just like Jacob's family was given a a rich new place to live in the land of Goshen, Jesus tells us that he is preparing a place for us to live in heaven. He is is esteeming us as his family. He is protecting us and providing for our needs and helping us in times of trouble and promising to be with us always. So the question is, are you reconciled in your relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Have you received by faith this gift of salvation that he is offering to you? How is your suffering, how is that unjust suffering that you thought of when I first began to talk, how is is that being redeemed even now for God's glory and for your good? And let me encourage you that maybe you can't see that yet. 
Maybe it's too dark for you right now. But let me encourage you that if you continue to trust God and you continue to ask him to show you, you will see that he is working providentially behind the scenes of your life just the way he did with Joseph to meet you in those hard places and to show you the way forward and to be present with you through whatever you're going through. You know, God redeemed the suffering of my car accident. Um, He did it by bringing me the man that would soon become my husband of 35 years because on that night that I was in my car driving, I was going to meet a man named Bob Nowak, just a casual date, guy I met through friends at church. But through those following months of surgery and recovery, Bob and I developed a deep friendship that then turned into love and then became marriage. And then, and, but as I look back over that time, you know, it's true that sometimes suffering can bring a depth of vulnerability and intimacy to a relationship that just can't get there when times are good. There's a depth in our relationship with each other, and there's a depth in our relationship with God that we just can't taste when things are easy and comfortable and good. It's kind of like that white-hot furnace that turns clay pots into porcelain. Let me pray for us. Father, there's so much for you to teach us through the life of Joseph But I think the thing that I so want to remember is that you are the God of reconciliation and redemption. Over and over in our lives, Lord, you reach into the pain and the brokenness and the heartache and the betrayal, and you, Lord, buy it back. And sometimes that looks like um, character development in us, Sometimes it looks like a sweet dependency that we develop in you. Sometimes it looks like a deeper sense of um, just walking with Christ by faith. But sometimes it changes our circumstances. Sometimes we look back and we say, thank you, God, for that hard thing or that disappointment, because where I am now is so much better than where I would have been. And so, Lord, for each one of us today, whatever hard place we're in, Would you show us how you're at work behind the scenes? Would you encourage us today? Would you remind us that you are the God who redeems and who reconciles through Jesus Christ, our Lord? And it's in his powerful name I pray. Amen.